Love Triangle murderess Sarah Williams, who is often referred to in the press as a bunny boiler, and her accomplice, Katrina Walsh, thought they had planned the perfect murder of Sadie Hartley. They believed Sadie to be the cause of all Sarah's problems. The truth was that Sadie was an innocent, fun-loving mother and businesswoman. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. My family and I are currently anchored in a harbor off of Culebra, Puerto Rico. It's really beautiful outside this morning, so the only sounds you'll hear will be the occasional hum of wind through our rigging and maybe the lap of water against our hull. It's possible you might hear these sounds in Lancashire, England, which is where today's case takes place. In Lancashire, there are several seaside towns and a lot of beautiful rolling countryside. True crime lovers will appreciate that Lancashire was the first place to take on mass fingerprinting after a Blackburn girl was murdered. She was only three years old when she was kidnapped and raped. The police took fingerprints of every man over 16 who was in town that night and matched them to a man named Peter Griffith. He was arrested and hanged for the murder. Also, some of the most famous witch trials, the Pendleton Witch Trials, were held in Lancashire. The two wicked witches in today's case will turn your stomach. It's a case of a love triangle gone terribly wrong. Sadie Hartley was a kind, gentle, loving mother and an ambitious, successful career woman. At 60 years old, she ran a thriving business and owned her home in a posh neighborhood. She had adult children who considered her to be an amazing mother, and soon she would have become a grandmother. She was a completely innocent woman who didn't deserve to be caught up in the life of a jealous, plotting murderess, but that's ultimately what happened. Her involvement with her partner Ian and his philandering brought a killer into her life. Sarah Williams was the envious, vindictive mistress who killed Sadie, but she didn't do it alone. She had a co-conspirator named Katrina Walsh. The murder took place on January 14, 2016. Sadie had just celebrated Christmas with family, friends, and co-workers. Her work friends considered her to be a dependable, considerate woman and a wonderful boss. In fact, it was because she didn't show up for work and wasn't responding to phone calls and emails that her co-workers called the police for a welfare check. When the police arrived at Sadie's home and their knocks weren't answered, they peeked through her letterbox and were able to see a woman laying on the floor in a pool of blood. They quickly broke into the home, only to find out that she had been brutally murdered. She had been stabbed 41 times. The knife wounds were scattered all over her body, but were primarily centered around her stomach and back. Several of the seasoned officers who were present at the scene say that her murder was the most brutal they'd ever seen. As you would expect, one of the first things they investigated was her romantic relations. Her boyfriend, Ian Johnson, was on a skiing vacation in the Swiss Alps. Sadie was preparing to pack her bags and had been planning to go join him. He couldn't have done it, but he told police right away that he knew who might have done it, a crazy ex-girlfriend named Sarah Williams. Let me tell you a little bit about the obsessive Sarah Williams. As a young girl, Sarah Williams was an only child. She was fairly ordinary. But I think something that stood out about her was that she had a lazy eye. This would be mentioned in many interviews. As a child especially, we all want to fit in. I'm sure she was teased about this physical feature. Between being an only child and being teased by her classmates, she drifted towards older friends, 
adult friends even. I imagine that if she's not getting validation from her classmates, she's not getting a feeling of acceptance or feeling attractive to people her own age, that she might look for someone older, someone who might find her more appealing or who are more forgiving, or, sadly, someone who's manipulative. This might be someone who's grooming her, or, in other words, trying to build a trusting relationship with a child with the aim of sexual abuse. Signs of grooming in a child might look like someone who's receiving unexplained gifts, or a child who won't explain where the gift came from. These days it could be as simple as spending a lot of time online and being secretive with their electronics. A child might lie about where they're going, or may become very independent. As a teenager, Sarah really enjoyed horseback riding and spent a lot of time at the stables. Her parents let her ride her bike there and back all the time. At only 13 years old, it was reported that she was seen several times going into one of the horse stalls with a much older man. And when I say reported, these are stories that were told by people who knew her. The relationship was not reported to police. Several people who worked and visited the stables said they assumed she was in a sexual relationship with a man who was many years older than her and who was married. In my opinion, if there was something sexual going on between them, which there likely was, it wasn't a relationship. It was rape. She was a child, and he was a pedophile. Why this wasn't reported to police, I have no idea. The reason we find out about this relationship at all is because at 13 years old, Sarah Williams was riding her bike home from the stables and was reportedly knocked off her bike, thrown into a vehicle, blindfolded, and driven to a house where she was sexually abused for quite a long time. And then her abuser left her on the side of the road, out in the middle of nowhere, alone. When she reported this, the police investigated, but they found nothing to confirm her story. And quite frankly, people didn't believe her. People told police that she was a liar, that she was a dreamer and lived in a fantasy world. They said she was constantly making up stories to try to get attention. Some people believed that she had really gone away with her older boyfriend and maybe they had gotten in a fight. Or maybe she just wanted to spend some time with him and made up the whole story. If this is true, then we can only wonder what made her crave this kind of attention. We also might be able to see that she was already becoming manipulative. Here's the rub, though. Only a month later, a girl was abducted in the same way that Sarah described. It's really sad if she was kidnapped and abused, that people blew her off, and whoever hurt her completely got away with it. She would have experienced firsthand how easy it is for people to get away with terrible things. Perhaps a kidnapping and sexual assault did happen, and since the perpetrators got away so easily, maybe this influenced some of her choices later in life. Maybe Sarah began to believe that bad people could get away with really bad things, and no one would believe the victim. Sarah attended a private school and was a fairly good student. Sadly, her parents split up in her early teens. It seemed her escape was her horseback riding at the stables, and this is where she befriended Katerina Walsh. Katerina was 20 years older than Sarah, but that didn't seem to matter to them. They built an interesting friendship. Katerina was described as very friendly, but socially awkward. This friendship continued all the way up through Sarah's teenage years, into adulthood, and continued all the way through the day of the murder. 
Witnesses to their friendship said the two were inseparable. Sarah would visit Katerina, and they would watch Harry Potter movies together in bed. They often vacationed together and spent almost all their free time at each other's homes. Cat wasn't the only person that Sarah met at the Whirl Horse Riding Center in Newton. At 17 years old, she met a man named David Hardwick. He was very wealthy. He was also three times her age. He was 57 and was also married with children. He spent a bit of money on her and told her she was beautiful. They bonded over a love of horses, but the relationship quickly turned sexual. She gladly entered into a sugar daddy type relationship with him, which lasted her entire free life. They settled into a routine where he would pay her 320 pounds a week. In return, he would show up every morning at 5 a.m. to cuddle or whatever. She was able to live way above her means because of him. She held jobs consistently, but because of him and a gift of 75,000 pounds, she was able to buy a nice home for herself. And then a second large gift of over 40,000 pounds later in her life allowed her to buy a second and eventually a third home as rental properties. They claimed to go on several vacation holidays every year, often as many as 12. During this entire time, her sugar daddy stays married and eventually his wife finds them together in the marital bed. She gave him an ultimatum, but he refused to give up his relationship with Sarah. David Hardwick told his wife that she would be better off if they stayed married. She must have considered the circumstances and decided to live with it. Hopefully she got her own thing going on the side as well and is as happy as a bird with a french fry. Sarah certainly kept things going on the side too. One sugar daddy relationship wasn't enough. One day she decided she wanted to take up skiing, so she joined an indoor ski park called the Chill Factory. It's a place where they make snow indoors all year round. Someone can sled, ski, or snowboard anytime they like. She was quite athletic and became a proficient skier very quickly. Her sugar daddy accompanied her, but decided he was too old to learn new tricks. He seemed to enjoy the skiing holidays anyway, because they planned several in the following years. Sarah even ended up getting a job at the chill factory, selling and organizing ski vacations. While working there, she met and started dating a ski instructor who went by the name of Old Master A. His full name was Somapat Sitwachana. Obviously, I'm gonna call him Old Master A because I probably botched his name anyway. He was also older and married. She certainly repeated her actions over and over. It is said that she was quick to seduce men sexually. Her younger sexual nature was likely something these older men were attracted to. Her relationship with Old Master A lasted one year. Then Sarah became clingy, possessive, and frankly disruptive to his marriage. When someone knowingly enters into an affair with a married person, it seems that the affair partner should probably have no right to be jealous or possessive. That married person is not theirs in the first place, and honestly, the only person who should feel hurt, betrayed, or possessive is the husband or wife of the cheater. Regardless, Sarah felt like she deserved his attention and demanded more of it. When old master A tried to break up the relationship, she got angry. Sarah gets so mad that she convinces her good friend Cat to spray insulating foam into his car exhaust. Sarah slashed his tires. Worst of all, 
she goes to his house and tells his wife. Sarah would stalk the couple by sitting outside his house in her car. She even sent a letter to the family saying that she was pregnant, and she showed them a friend's ultrasound in a terrible attempt to prove her fake pregnancy. She was doing anything that she could to hurt him, his wife, and their family. She wanted revenge against feeling dismissed. Eventually, Master A's wife gets frightened and calls the police to report her stalking. When the police approach her in her vehicle, she finally leaves the family alone. If you think that was a wake-up call for her obsessive behavior, though, you'd be wrong. She owned it. She began bragging to her friends that she was a bit of a psycho and a she-devil. Did I mention that she was still having an affair with her sugar daddy? Her obsession with silver foxes soon snared her another ski instructor. His name was Andy Poole. He was 53 years old, over 20 years her senior. She was on a vacation in the French Alps with her sugar daddy when she met him. This relationship didn't last long because this man wanted a long-term relationship with Sarah. After 12 months, he wanted her to give up her sugar daddy and to be with him. She looked at her situation and said, Nope. She thought, I've got it pretty good right now. I think I'll stick to what I have, which is a generous sugar daddy and a sea of older men to choose from. She had a man who was willing to fulfill her need to be desired and appreciated. She had a man who was ready to be in a committed relationship with her, and she runs. Eventually, she meets Ian Johnston in 2012. He had been a fireman and was considered a hero. Now, Ian had already been dating Sadie Hartley for a very long time. They had met after getting divorces in 2002. For nearly 10 years, they had dated off and on, but had never committed themselves fully to each other. They were dating as Sadie built her business up quite successfully. They were dating while Sadie raised her children and while he raised his. They were dating and helping each other out through life's up and downs for 10 years, but the commitment still hadn't happened. In fact, they were on a break when Ian took a job at the chill factory as a ski instructor. There he met Sarah, and their meeting quickly turned to texting, which led to sexting, and then very quickly to a sexual relationship. Even with this budding relationship with Sarah, Ian is still trying to patch things up with Sadie. He truly wants to get back together with her. Christmas time, 2013, rolls around, and one of the most bizarre things in this triangle happens. I guess maybe I should really call it a quadrangle. In December, Sadie and Ian and Sarah and David are all on a vacation at the same ski resort at the same time. My guess is, as a ski vacation salesperson, Sarah may have set the whole thing up, just for kicks. In a later investigation of Sarah's phone records, texts are found between Ian and Sarah during this time. There were many of them, and one of them referenced that Sarah had enjoyed playing footsie with Ian under the table. This likely means that the four of them sat down and had drinks or a meal together. The two of them being so brazen in front of their partners disgusts me, especially in Sadie's case. It really says something about the disregard for their partner's feelings. I'm sure Sarah and Ian enjoyed sneaking around. It probably made things feel exciting, 
but it's also sickening and should feel shameful. After about 12 months, their relationship falls apart. Ian is not over his relationship with Sadie. And of course, there's always Sarah's sugar daddy in the background too. Besides that, Sarah's becoming needy and demanding and possesses of, of Ian, even though, once again, she really has no right to. She loved being desired and wanted the way many people do at the beginning of any new relationship. This feeling is often amplified in needy or insecure people. When Sarah realized Ian wasn't that into her, she got mad. Ian saw her as a sex object, someone he could use, but not necessarily someone he wanted to be in a long-term relationship with. I place some of the blame for what happened on Ian. He loved neither of these women enough to commit to them. Perhaps he was using them both. By the summer of 2013, he made the decision to go back to being with Sadie, leaving Sarah Williams obsessively angry. She felt she had lost some kind of competition to someone who never knew that Sarah was competing for her husband's affection in the first place. Sarah placed blame on Sadie as the reason the relationship between she and Ian didn't work. She placed blame on Sadie, who had no idea that Sarah was part of Ian's romantic life. She placed blame on Sadie, an innocent woman who simply trusted her partner far too much. I've seen the words bunny boiler thrown around describing Sarah, and if you've ever seen the movie Fatal Attraction, you'll understand that reference. Sarah Williams wasn't ready to let him go, and was definitely not willing to let an older woman take her place in his life. Ian, rather than cutting things off cleanly, keeps messaging Sarah while he's getting back together with Sadie. Ian and Sadie go on a three-week vacation together. Their relationship seems to be growing stronger, and this makes Sarah so mad. She broke into Ian's house at one point. Out of desperation and a desire to hurt both Sadie and Ian, she writes a letter to Sadie telling her all about the affair. I'm going to read you a few lines from this page-long plus typewritten letter. You can see the whole thing online if you like. I'll post part of it on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Facebook and Instagram, too. There are links in the show description to take you to those if you'd like to see it. The letter goes like this. Dear Sadie, I think you should know that Ian has been cheating on you for over a year. He's been having an affair with me since returning from Camp Swiss in August of 2013. By his own admission, Ian is not in love with you, never has been, and never will be. The lack of any form of chemistry or spark between your husband and you was mentioned several times by different people who have no vested interest in either of you. The fact that he doesn't love you is blatantly obvious for anyone to see and is clearly backed up by the way he's behaving. Make no mistake about it, Ian knows that you're buying him and so does everyone else. He has said this himself by his own entirely free admission. Right now, he's letting you do it because it suits him to do so while he does what he wants behind your back. We've been sleeping together and everything else that goes with that, week in and week out, for some considerable time now. Have a look around the house. There's plenty of my things around the place. Has he even changed the sheets since we were in there last? There has been more lying, deceit, and sneaking around than you would ever think. Did you really think he would go to the pub that many evenings? The sex is unbelievably fantastic, the best he's ever had by a really, really long way. 
We've never been able to get enough of each other. It satisfies a need in him he will never be able to suppress or manage without. Sarah then goes on to talk about how he's so stressed out and that Sadie is the cause of his stress and that he should be with someone who makes as much money as she does because she makes him feel like a loser. You know, because Sadie should be blamed for Ian's insecurity. Ugh. Sarah says that Ian's actions are not the actions of someone with any respect, desire, love, or affection for Sarah whatsoever. When this bombshell was dropped, a decision had to be made. Did she and Ian truly love each other, and did they want to stay together, or do they each want to go their own ways? It seemed to those around them that they chose each other. They drew closer, and Ian continued to push Sarah away but he would still send her the occasional text and the occasional sexting still happened. He justified this in his mind by saying it was better than Sarah going bananas and causing more harm to the relationship. If he just kept her on the periphery, she'd behave. He was playing with fire because he didn't cut things off cleanly, and I'm sure that Sadie didn't know that he was keeping in touch with Sarah. Things had ended physically between the two, but the texts were still ongoing, and a little fire of hatred started in Sarah's soul. Everything seemed to add fuel to that fire. She began talking with Kat about the perfect murder. She wondered how she could get the bitch out of the picture. Her words, not mine. The two of them conspired. Thoughts became words. Words became actions. Actions that were put into motion and would end in the murder of Sadie. At first, they conspired to have Kat's ex-husband shoot Sadie with a bow and arrow. He was a pretty avid marksman. He was approached by Sarah, who admitted to him that she was using a burner phone and that she wanted to drive several hours to talk to him. He knew something was wrong. Essentially, he was being asked if he would murder someone for her. He blocked her phone number and stopped returning any of her messages. Then, Sarah and Kat talked about doing a drive-by shooting on a motorcycle. Kat even came up with the idea of leaving an ISIS flag on the scene. I'm pretty sure no one would believe that ISIS had its sights on a small businesswoman and mother in the suburbs of England. Eventually, they came up with what they believed would be the perfect plan. Christmas of 2015 rolls around. Sadie began working hard to forgive Ian and even attended a work Christmas party with him at the chill factory. A photo was taken that showed the two of them sitting together, smiling, and behind them, just a couple rows back, was Sarah, who was busy scheming and plotting. That night, Sarah took the opportunity to put a GPS tracker on Ian's car. She knew that this would lead her to Sadie's home. Once they figured out where Sadie lived, they went and bought some cheap flowers from Tesco. These are similar to the ones you'd find at a gas station. Kat was tasked with the job of carrying the flowers up to Sadie's door. She knocked on the door and asked for Miss Hartley. When Sadie identified herself, the flowers were handed over. Sadie didn't see a card, so she asked Kat who they were from, and Kat's only answer was that she couldn't remember. She then quickly walked down the driveway and away from the house. Sadie immediately called Ian. He was away on a ski trip. He denied knowing anything about the flowers, and he certainly didn't send them. 
so they couldn't figure out who would have sent her cheap flowers and why they would be delivered at 9 o'clock at night. The whole thing didn't add up. Sadie messaged her best friend about the flowers, and her friend suggested that she call the police. Sadie didn't do that. Her instincts were there, telling her that something was wrong and that something strange was definitely going on, but she wasn't sure what to do, so she did nothing. A week later, she didn't show up for work. Back at the beginning of this episode, I told you briefly about what the police found on the scene. Now I'm going to tell you about how they solved this murder in less than three days. Let's just say it was a result of some amazing police work. As stated, they found Sadie had been stabbed repeatedly. She'd been stabbed so deeply that it reached her spinal column, as well as hitting her spleen, her lungs, her stomach, and even in her right eye. The eight-inch blade caused wounds that would have killed her at several different entry points. They also found a single boot print and a little piece of metal tucked into the collar of Sadie's shirt. This was later identified as part of a stun gun. They presumed she had been shocked first, which made it almost impossible for her to defend herself. She still put up a bit of a fight, though, because the coroner stated that there were some defensive wounds. After talking with Ian, finding him innocent, and getting a possible suspect from him, they began to look at CCTV footage. They found that a suspicious car had been driving into and around Sadie's neighborhood over the prior few weeks. Most of the cars in the wealthy neighborhood were Audis and Ferraris and higher-end vehicles, but this car was a small, inexpensive one, and it belonged to Sarah Williams. That was enough to go and arrest her and bring her in for questioning. The police go to her house at three in the morning. They wake her up from a deep sleep. She has just enough time to get dressed and call David to come and look after her dog. She's then taken into custody, and once she's there, she's kind of joking around with the officers a little bit. She tells them that she was home the night before. She denies having any animosity towards Sadie, but she did admit that she'd been having an affair with Ian and was fairly open about it. The police were questioning themselves and wondering if they had the right person. Sarah claimed she left work earlier that day because she felt ill. Then she called David to tell him that she, to let him know that she was feeling sick too. She said she planned on taking it easy that night and spending the night alone at home in bed. What she was really doing was setting up her alibi. But I guess she forgot about that wonderful technology that is CCTV because she was seen leaving her house that evening. The police put together a huge task force. About 40 officers were included in working on this case. One team was studying the CCTV footage and another team was working on Sarah Williams' phone. Her phone had pinged in Sadie's neighborhood the entire week before the murder. When police searched Sarah's home, they noticed that the entire place had been scrubbed and bleached. They did find one small drop of blood on the sink and took that in to be analyzed. It would later be identified as belonging to Sadie. They found a pair of Sarah's boots that matched the footprint found in Sadie's home. They also found a burner phone under her bed. As the CCT footage was studied further, they realized that there were two people involved in Sadie's murder. They needed to find out who that second person was. Who had delivered those flowers? 
Two women were seen leaving a car and walking towards Sarah's house on the night of the flower delivery. They were able to identify the license plate number on the vehicle. When they entered the vehicle number into the system, it couldn't be found. But then one of the investigators suggested that the 8 on the license plate was actually a 3 that had been taped over. When they re-entered the numbers, they were able to follow the car leaving Sadie's neighborhood on the night of the murder and going to a nearby parking lot. This happened so quickly that there was no way the car could have been cleaned. They retrieved the car and searched the interior, where they found traces of blood in several places inside the car. They all matched Sadie's blood type. I guess the perfect crime wasn't so perfect. Police were able to identify Kit Walsh through the CCT footage as well. They found footage of the two of them entering the Tesco together and leaving with the flowers. Police were even able to find footage of the two of them buying the taser in Germany. They went there specifically to buy the highest power taser they could find. Police went to Kat's house, brought her in for questioning, and she folded like a lawn chair. She couldn't keep her mouth shut. As she walked into the doors of the police station, she was already blathering like an idiot. She claimed to have a memory problem, she said. She said she couldn't remember anything that happened more than three days before. But then she began speaking of journals that she had. The officer at the reception desk told her to keep her mouth shut and wait until she was speaking to officers, but she just couldn't stop talking. They bring her further into the station, and she ends up sitting on the floor wailing and rocking back and forth like a madwoman. Later, footage shows her limping very slowly into her cell. She acted quite comically, as if she was a senile old lady. It's interesting to look at the footage from the CCTV camera when it showed the two of them walking together. It showed them both walking quickly across the screen, and there was no sign of limp or any fragility in Kat's gait. When Sarah is told that Kat is in custody, police notice for the first time that she appears shaken. She sits back in her chair with her arms folded and her head down. Her answer to every question is no comment. Just a little way down the hall, Kat's putting on the best, or maybe the worst, act of her life and pretends that she has finally realized that Sarah has killed Sadie. It's truly entertaining to watch. You can see her on a documentary called The Murder of Sadie Hartley. Kat told police that she thought Sarah was going to blame the murder on her. The police, predictably, used this opportunity to ask her for evidence against Sarah. Kat suddenly has all her memories back and takes them to the horse barn where she worked and showed police where she buried the knife, the stun gun, and the clothes that Sarah had been wearing. Kat had covered them with dirt and then with horse manure to obscure them further. It gets even better. She mentions the diary that she kept again. Police find it hiding in an eaves trough at her house. Not only that, but inside it there is an abundance of incriminating evidence. Inside were pages and pages of details. Details that proved that Kat had agreed to be part of the murder plans, and was so excited about it that she had to drink some southern comfort just to calm down. There were some rough drafts and plans on how they would commit the murder and when. A few pages had been ripped out and destroyed, but there was still plenty of information that would show that the murder was planned and premeditated for nearly 18 months prior to it being done. The police had a strong case. 
These two best friends turned on each other immediately, which helped the prosecution prove that both of them were in on the planning. Even though Kat didn't commit the murder, she was still guilty in helping plan and carry out what they believed to be a foolproof plan. It was very easy for the jury to find them both guilty. Sarah showed no remorse throughout the trial. She seemed to feel entitled to her actions. She couldn't understand the pain she caused to Sadie or her family and friends. These are traits of a psychopath. All she cared about was her own feelings, her needs, and her desires. Perhaps there's more than a dash of narcissism thrown in there, too. She was given a 30-year fixed-term sentence. Kat was given 25 years. They will not get out before their terms are up. I think the judge had it right when he said, Sarah Williams, over the last 18 months, you plotted the murder of a woman whose only crime was to love a man you wanted for yourself. But let no one make the mistake of thinking that this was a crime of passion. This was a crime of obsession, of arrogance, of barbarity. But above all, it was a crime of pure evil. And over that period of 18 months of scheming, you found in Katerina Walsh both a fellow spirit and an enthusiastic participant. You, Walsh, are every bit as morally degenerate as Williams. No wonder you have been the best of friends over so many years. The judge goes on to say that they knew all along this was no game or fantasy, and that Sadie Hartley died for their amusement. Meanwhile, Sadie's family miss her every day and want her to be remembered as a fun-loving woman who enjoyed life to its fullest. They don't keep in touch with Ian Johnston. They kicked him out of her home shortly after her murder. He admitted that he was weak and foolish for having an affair with Sarah, but claimed he was also a victim. He revealed that after Sadie's death, he discovered he wasn't in her will and was shocked by the treatment he received. He told the press their relationship was a hot cocoa and Kindles type of relationship and that he feels abject horror about what happened and regrets ever meeting Sarah. He broke down in tears to say he has lost everything, Sadie, his home, and he expects that he will continue to feel like he is being kicked for a very long time. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks to those of you who have subscribed, rated, and reviewed the podcast, or simply have shared it with a friend. An extra big thank you to those of you who have donated money towards the production. There are links to do so in the episode description if you'd like to donate, and it would be greatly appreciated. I'd like to share some of the reviews with you from some wonderful listeners that have taken the time to write. The first one is from an anonymous reviewer, and it says, I listened to the episode on Sue Neal Frazier. I know a lot about this case and have read the Court of Criminal Appeal decision. I still don't know what I think. This is the only media, including podcasts, books, and shows, that was genuinely balanced, and it told the whole story. It's why it's so hard to know what to think in this case. I can't wait to listen to the rest of the episodes, which I hope are just as balanced and interesting. Great work. Thank you so much. I can't say that all of them are balanced because I can't help but feel a little bit of a lean towards one side or the other in specific cases. Sue Neil Fraser's case was definitely a yo-yo of a case. Thank you so much for your rating and review, and I hope you enjoyed the other cases. Steph says, I loved your latest about Sue Fraser. Very well done. 
I agree with the comment about the music. It detracts from the show. Leave the music out. Also, I'm never disturbed by the boat noises. Keep up the great work. This is becoming my favorite podcast. Thank you, Steph, and thanks for your feedback about whether to keep the music or not. It's a really hard decision to make. Amy D. says, keep the music. I really think it adds to the episodes. Unique stories, well told. I've listened to them all. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, everybody, for your kind words. Um, I'd also like to tell you about my Midwest vibe. She says, thank you for sharing the stories of the brave heroes of Flight 93. Brought tears to my eyes. I have to admit that while researching that case, I cried more times than I'm comfortable with sharing. Thank you so much, my friend, for taking the time to rate and review the podcast. It means so much to me. Thanks once again to all of you wonderful listeners. And here's me wishing all of you fair winds and following seas.